Hello everyone, welcome to Chatty AF, the Anime Feminist podcast. We are the podcast of Anime Feminist, the website. Uh, We look at Japanese pop culture through an intersectional feminist lens, and today we are diving right into the middle of the currently airing season, that is summer 2023. Uh, I'm Alex, I'll be your host today, I'm one of the managing editors here at Anifem. I also have a doctorate, but don't ask me for medical advice because I can only give you book recommendations. Uh, I'm joined today by my co-staffers, Tony and Peter. Hi everybody, I'm Tony, I am uh, an editor at Anime Feminist, also a teacher. You can find me at Poet Pedagog on various social media platforms. I also create video content for Anime Feminist. It's good to talk to you all. And I'm uh, Peter Fobian. I'm a manager of YouTube content strategy at Crunchyroll. Uh, and I quit Twitter, so uh, I guess you could probably find me at Peter Fobian on like Blue Sky or something if you can invite. Lovely. Thank you both for being here today. Uh, so we're doing a mid-season check-in. If you're not familiar with how that usually works, what we are going to do is we are going to uh, work our way up from the bottom of our premiere digest to the top and just kind of check in on how a bunch of series that are currently on the air are doing. Uh, now, unfortunately, due to you know time restraints and us being mortal humans, we are somewhat limited today to the series that people on staff are watching and the ones that we feel have kind of the most uh, relevant talking points for our readership and our audience. So we're going to go through them. But of course, if you feel like we've missed out on something, you know, we haven't talked about a show where something kind of interesting and relevant to our interest is happening, do let us know. Um, if you're a patron, you can pop that in the Discord and come and say hi. We'll also have comments open and all that jazz. So if this is anything else we need to cover before we dive in, I say we dive in, starting from the bottom uh, of the barrel, as it were, and working our way up to the top. So I will start us off today. Just before we move on to uh, better and brighter things, I just want to take a super quick detour to talk about Level 1 Demon Lord and One Room Hero, which I am... I want to say watching, I kind of, it's more accurate to say I can't look away. Um, (laughs) But it's just something I kind of want to flag because it is of interest is that it may or may not be setting up an enemies to lovers relationship between its main characters. Now I make no promises about that, but I'm just going to tell you where I'm coming from on that. So first of all, it's staying the course in terms of being like full of fan service, very zany and very silly. Um, it has some, you know, some of those vaguely interesting sort of fantasy genre stuff in there. But the main thing that is wigging me out about the show is that it's it's doing it's doing this thing. So first of all, uh, you know, nice and easy for me. There is a moment where the demon secretary, who unfortunately exists mostly to be ogled, the poor girl. She makes a comment to the demon lord. She basically says, why are you obsessed with hanging out with this hero guy anyway? What are you, in love with him? And the demon lord just kind of looks sideways and blushes. And the moment moves on. It doesn't really feel like a punchline. It kind of feels weirdly sincere. So that was interesting. The main thing, though, is the kind of genre framing that it's putting itself into, it's leaning much more towards magical girlfriend than, say, buddy cop dynamic. Um, Like, this little demon lord turns up in this guy's life and is causing chaos and is causing shenanigans, but is also very much kind of, you know, pulling him out of the rut and is going to sort his life out is kind of the implication. And the demon lord jumps into a very, like, domestic role as well immediately. Like, he's putting on an apron and doing the cooking. He's running the bath. He's doing the shopping. You know, very kind of uh, the, the ideal sort of, I don't want to say idealized wife, but you know what I mean, that kind of that kind of archetype. And then the demon king takes a human form to go out, and the human form that he takes is a scantily clad young woman with fluffy green hair, and for a minute before he fixes, he has little horns poking out of the hair and goes, oops, I better fix that. So for a second, he looks like Lum from Urusai Yatsura. And I'm sitting there staring at it going, is that a deliberate homage? Are you are you making a reference to Urusai Yatsura? One of the most iconic, like, cool magical girlfriend, uh, cool supernatural girl crashes into the protagonist's life stories. And if so, Why? So, is that going to pay off? I don't know. Just something that's happening. 
I, again, I make no promises. I certainly don't make a recommendation of the show necessarily, but th- that's a creative decision that is fascinating to me. And I just wanted to let the folks at home know. Um, I may not end up finishing this one because it's not quite my thing otherwise, but if people are interested in me pursuing this strange mystery to the end, I mean, I'll do it. I need more than one of you to ask me, Ven I mean, nicely. <laughs> but just, I just wanted the folks at home to know that is a thing that is happening over there in Demon Town. Um, so, Tony and Peter, there you go. That's not something. So if it happens, in your opinion, is that good or... Oh, that's that's a very good question, Peter. Is it good? I don't know. If that were to happen, would you be happy that that occurred? Well, I mean, it would... Honestly, like, if they are setting up a weird little love story between these two characters who were once mortal enemies, that would be... I don't know. It could be fun. It could add a fun emotional center to the show, which is mostly just kind of silly. But yeah, whether or not it's good is kind of a... That's a complicated question that maybe we'll return to. It is worth noting that the, that the demon lord does look like a 10-year-old girl. Oh, that... Okay. Yeah, most of the time. Well, not even that. It's like they've been shrunken down to a little shitty chibi nugget, basically. And yeah, when they take a human form, they look like a, like a hot teenager, basically. So again, the show's not like... Again, like, they look like Lum. It's insane. Um, which, I don't know, on one hand, kind of fun that they take a very feminine presenting form but still go by he, him, and still go by demon lord and stuff. I don't know, that's kind of, you know, detaching uh, pronouns from presentation is sort of fun like that. But again, I'm absolutely not making the argument this is going to be, like, an amazing queer progressive love story of the season. I just, I had, I had to tell someone that I witnessed this because it has been bugging me. You just speak your truth. It's just, I watched, you know, multiple hours of the show and I need someone to know. Um, but yeah, again, uh, as, as for the narrative effect that will have and what that means for us here, I don't know. That remains to be seen. But again, if people want me to stick through with it and find out, I can take that bullet. Um, <laughs> mm. But we shall have to see. We shall have to maybe come back to that one later in the season, depending on what the audience reckons. I'm just so fascinated by looking at the different, um, at the different forms of this demon lord. You're, right, she, yeah. They, he, I got my prono- pronouns confusing. Either you're right, like teenage girl or 10 year old chibi demon lord thing, but both of them presentate, presenting uh, bleh, words. Yeah. But, um, as opposed to the big, like, muscly monster that it began as. I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about this one, but I think I might as well mention it. Let's maybe move on, though, and come back to that one. Uh, from demons onto zombies to a different supernatural creature. How is our bucket list of the dead doing? Remind me, has there been an episode since the, uh, the, the fight? Of, so the most recent one is the fight of the episode? That was the last one. Oh, because it has a, had a production delay, didn't it? Yes. Okay, so taking into account this one has had a production delay and there's not too much left to talk about that hasn't already been covered in the three-ep check in uh how, how's how's zombie 100 doing is there anything what's the what's the kind of a uh, elevator pitch for how it's going <laughs> for those who may not have read the check-in you want to take it peter since i did the three up i imagine i kind of say a lot of the same things you have i i, I like the idea of what it's trying to do but i think the execution ends up making it kind of an offshot of the east kaijan where it's just like a guy in new situation experiences total power fantasy where he's where being unremarkable in his day job, something about it or something intrinsic about him makes him perfectly suited to his new environment. And, you know, that's fine, except I think that the way it executes on a lot of his, like, different uh, bucket list items just kind of feels shitty. The major example so far in the anime being the, the Flight Attendance of the Dead episode, where uh, he, uh, for some reason, specifically wanted to wine and dine a flight attendant, which is very, that's a very, like... Like a very like nineteen seventies kind of <laughs> aspiration. That's true. It does have a certain vintage uh, James Bondiness to it somehow. I don't know. <laughs> or like people who grew up watching Pan Am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just like during the the like golden era of uh, commercial airlines, where people like everybody wanted to be a pilot growing up, that kind of thing. But I, I, regardless, of course, like uh, events occur which miraculously ends up with him being locked inside of a liquor store with a bunch of flight attendants. Uh, and it sort of turns into a, it's like boys on one side of the table and girls on the other. And everybody has to do an awkward introduction. Uh, it looks, 
extremely uh, like socially painful. But anyway, uh, yeah. So uh, so yeah, Akira gets super drunk. Everybody drinks a lot. Uh, he gets to sort of live out this fantasy, make a special connection with one of the girls, uh, while his best friend gets lucky with another one over in the uh, the bedroom section of the giant store they're in. And then uh, once the narrative is done with the girls, they're just kind of immediately erotically killed off because they no longer serve a narrative purpose uh, so that there are no loose ends that the story needs to deal with before uh, it can just have them go on our way. He can cross the item off of his list and uh, move on to whatever his next interest is, which uh, it kind of, it seemed like it was trying to, maybe turn the women into like real characters, especially one where she kind of talks about her reason for becoming a flight attendant. But the only purpose of all that was just to kind of serve out his, his fantasy of going out, like making an emotional connection with somebody, but uh, not one that was long lasting. Cause ultimately that might get in the way of him doing more cool stuff um, before he turns into a zombie. I, I don't like it. In that sense, like, it very much frustrates me because it really cheapens the arc of that character who he was getting to know, right? Like, she has this whole revelation of, like, wow, I really cared about doing care work. Like, that was something that was really meaningful to me, and being a flight attendant and, like, labor ruined it for me. And I thought that was pretty Mm -hmm. profound. And then it's like, she had this desire to continue with that, and then that's stolen from her by being eaten by zombies, which narratively ends up feeling like it's stolen from her by the narrative providence uh, that she's not allowed to have it because this is not her story. This is not her wish for film and fantasy. This is his, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So she's got to die for him to have his, you know, thing that he can just check off the list and, you know, not have to worry about her anymore for this, you know, relationship that he's starting to build. Yeah, it even directly connects the moment where she said she fell in love with her job when she was, like, a kid was, like, puking in the the airplane and she had, she was helping Akira heave his guts out after he drank an entire bottle of alcohol. That's what reminded her that she loved being a stewardess. And then as her like final act, she gets to want to get once again, push her hand on his back to like make him go away. So (laughs) she doesn't endanger him now that she's been bitten. It's like, Oh, I got to fulfill my purpose once more by letting you continue to live out your fantasies while I just die here, I guess. While this zombie literally chews on me as you're walking away. It really is just the case that, like, women in these kind of stories just... Well, we'll see, because we're going to meet another woman. And I heard she's pretty cool, from what people say in the Discord. People like people like the the the, um, the new woman we're going to meet pretty soon in Top 100. So maybe, maybe we'll get some good female characters. It's possible, but I feel like it's directly setting up a conflict in their ideologies. Because he has the 100... His bucket list of items that he wants to do before he dies, and she has 100 ways to not get turned into a zombie... Uh, and she's been well, yeah, but there's another woman. Oh, you mean the uh, the the Gaijin uh, Weibo uh, girl who's obsessed with samurai? <laughs> I, I guess. I, I, I guess. What? I mean, yeah, I yeah. didn't know what was going on, but I, I guess that is who I'm talking about. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, <laughs> she really strikes me as just a like your classic blonde girl that watched Naruto and went to Japan so that she could become a ninja. <laughs> Uh, I, I think it's her. I, I may be wrong, but everything I've seen so far has led me to believe that's what she is. And you know, I mean, that could be uh, that could be cool. I, I I did like High School of the Dead, and one of the girls is just like my character is that I got a katana and I am really good at using it, and that's lit. Uh, but you know, <laughs> with her, I guess she could be fun for sure. We can see how it goes with her. <laughs> I. I I don't know how deep it's going to be, but I do think she could definitely be a fun character. Wow, every new dot point I learn about this show is... Yeah. <laughs> uh, so maybe when we come back to this one for the end of season, we'll have to weigh out the question of like, all right, is the cool factor of, you know, the, the bucket list and the cool ninja girls and everything, does that outweigh the kind of objectification and things? I, we'll have to come back to see if we can answer that question. My concern about the main girl, who, whose name escapes me at the moment, is that it's basically setting up her to be the type who doesn't know how to enjoy life, and she basically needs the main character to teach her how her entire uh, like life philosophy is incorrect, and she needs to chill out and have fun. And over mm. the course of that, she'll definitely fall in love with him as well. Uh, that oh, seems yay. to be the one they're setting up. So it's just like, yeah, uh, 
you may have thought that you had designed a very effective zombie survival strategy, but you were actually just being a really boring person. Oh man. Well, yes, we will, we will shamble our way back to that one at the end. You both, you're also both watching dark gathering. How's that one faring? Uh, it's giving other side Pokemon only without the lesbians. You, you sounded kind of tired and sad when you said that. So can you elaborate? <laughs> the animation has just gotten so much worse. It, it really makes it difficult to have much investment in the spooks because the spooks aren't like creatively constructed or meaningful in the way that like even the ones in the other side picnic were. I, I can't really be invested in a show that's supposed to like at least spook me out. I don't think it's d- designed to like actually scare me. I mean, maybe, I don't know, but there are some moments in it that are just kind of scary because of the ick factor. Like there's a moment where like the doll shoves her hair down his throat and you Ooh. see like a, a shot of the inside of his like esophagus with the hair going down it. And you're just like, well, that was disgusting. Um, wow. And I, I kind of found that compelling, you know, as a horror aficionado, but otherwise like the, the scares have gotten less scary. Um, more just kind of sometimes feeling a little like cheap or just weird. Aiko has gotten some development, and it's been interesting because she like she's she had a moment in the first episode that was like really interesting and made me wonder what's going on with her. Where she like at, at the end of you know at the you know when Keitaro came back and you know he was like. Y'all, I hope we don't get taken on another, you know, one of these trips again, you know, to a scary place. And she just looks at him and gives him this incredibly cryptic expression and says, But you came back anyways, because you're addicted to being afraid. You love Mm -hmm. it, actually. And I I found that to be a really interesting moment for her. Like, it made me wonder what's going on with her. Um, And, like, whether she was purposefully gaslighting Keitaro, right? Or alternatively, whether she's seeing this inside of him and like seeing this part of him he doesn't want to acknowledge. And so I was really excited to see where that went. But the show has n- took that in probably one of the less interesting directions it could have, where it's she says that not because not because she's gaslighting him and not because she's like not because she's seeing something that's latent within him, but because she's just projecting her own feelings onto him. Because she's addicted to fears, and she's addicted to spooks. And so she's going to emotionally manipulate him into continuing to do all these crazy, scary things with her. And I don't know, I'm just like, I mean, okay, I guess. That's, it just makes her like, I, 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 can't see, I can't decide if the show wants her to be a villain, or to be a character who you root for. Um, or, like, the cute, funny side character. I definitely think it is preferable to just her being the cheery girl slash love interest, right? Because at least it gives some point of yes. interest on her. Uh, Absolutely, and I, yeah. It is, it is interesting trying to... I don't know where this is supposed to lead. It definitely helps facilitate the plot, but it, it seems to be like a, a sort of character choice that I'm kind of curious where it's supposed to go in the narrative. So I do think it's at least got that going for it. Yeah, I think that like one of one of... The problem structurally with it is just that, you know, with these monster of the week sort of shows, you really have to have compelling monsters. Um, mm-hmm. This show doesn't. It just doesn't. <laughs> and, and like, I'm much more interested in what's going on with that thing that took Yayoi's um, mother. Like, the weird kind of fetus yeah. tentacle monster thing. Like... That that looked cool, and I'm like, what is that? I want to know more about that. Yeah, Yayoi is great. Oh yeah, she's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, she's great. I, I think, like, uh, I do want to say, like, I, I was really uh, excited about this anime because I, I think it was one of the first manga that were free to read on the when the Vizmon launched their Viz Manga app, and I checked it out. I'd never heard of it before, uh, and it looked really good. The art's really great in the manga, um, and. 
Yayoi is just a very interesting kind of, uh, not quite the protagonist, but uh, sort of maybe the protagonist, whereas Keitaro is more of the like perspective character, right? Um, yeah. I think like her quest is really, I, I, as you said, has a lot of interesting elements with it, like her mom's ghost. And I, I love her character design. And she's got like her battle outfit with the shark shoes and like the big jacket, which looks ridiculous until you realize she's hiding a crowbar in it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she's she's a little badass. I, I love that about the manga. Her shoes kind of give uh, Sora from Kingdom Hearts. Like whenever I see yeah, it, I'm, does. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, you and your little clown shoes. And by little, I mean gigantic. I, I mean, you can't find ghosts if you're not cute. <laughs> you, you do see her like dress normally sometimes and it's like oh past the eyes you do like she is just like a normal looking person but then she like yeah puts on her combat outfit she looks like a freaking uh uh character from like gash bell type <laughs> little combat Zatch bell i'm crying i watched that so much growing up it was like my favorite but yeah i i i, I think i'm curious to see where this goes in like the end game um, but yeah, the week to week stuff is not really compelling. I think, I think this is definitely one of those anime that's like, maybe better just to read the manga. Mm, especially if it has that like problem with the visuals. We'll have to see how that, we'll have to see how that pans out because yeah, if it's like kind of hitting, uh, crunchy visuals at this early stage, probably doesn't bode well for, you know, it, it won't necessarily get better from here, which is unfortunate. Um, but that, Hey, it's got shark shoes so can't argue with that <laughs> so dark gathering let's let's leave that with the scooby gang um <laughs> for now and come back to it um peter you're the only one who's listed as watching Spellblades. can you give us a uh <laughs> quick rundown on some stuff that's happening there is that sort of staying the course as to how it was or is it uh biting off some bigger things I thought it was kind of fun looking in the beginning because it's straight fantasy rather than being an isekai. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's obviously got the Harry Potter type school, but it was kind of a, um, a what do you call that? A ensemble cast uh, type deal. Uh, I thought the Katana Girl, uh, once again, we got a Katana Girl uh, who speaks like in old samurai style with the Degozaru stuff was pretty fun. And you obviously kind of had like a you know a, um, your cookie cutter protagonist, but there were like the, those his surrounding cast seemed to be like uh, interesting and have their own backstories that weren't really directly connected to just being amazed by everything that he does, uh, like in most stories like this. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and and like the school was kind of interesting, and it 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 has this style which really looks like Demon Slayer inspired. Um, with the way uh, I'm talking about the animation style specifically with the way it like has a lot of action with rotating cameras and stuff. The opening really looks like that. So uh, yeah, that looks fun and it's mostly been okay since I actually found out it was by the same creator as the one who created Alderman in the sky, which I had really wished back in the day got a second season since that show was way better than this one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh I'm kind of surprised based on my experience with Alderman, which I thought was going in a really interesting direction um, with like these two, it's kind of the same situation where it's the smart guy and the girl who is just like a master swordsman, but they kind of, it, the anime ends with this wedge getting put between them with where uh, there's this princess there, you have an mutual acquaintance, which, which uh, approaches the guy and says like, I really don't think this country has a fair government and I want to start a revolution and take it over from all of these, this horrible oligarchy that's, that's ruining everybody's lives. And he knows that if he does that, the, the girl is a loyalist. So he's basically going to have to fight his best friend probably to the death. Uh, and then the anime ends, of course. So I was like, dang, this guy, Oh my god, yeah, this is really <laughs> cool. And then, yeah. But then I watched this one and like, I, so that I know we're we're all very interested in in uh, Nick's recent tweet um, about the first villain of the series being like a monster rights activist, um, which was actually like the reveal at the end of the last episode. So we don't have too much on that besides the fact that she called herself a monster rights activist and has been doing brain surgery. Uh, like unethical brain surgery on monsters to allow them to speak like humans 
so that I guess people couldn't just say that they're mindless, I guess is the idea. Um, and although she was able to successfully perform the surgery, she couldn't get any of them to talk, which like the monster loving girl in the main cast was able to do probably just by being compassionate to them, uh, you know, being somebody, somebody would actually want to talk to, uh, so she wants to perform brain surgery on that girl to find out what it is about her brain that makes monsters want to talk to her. She's a very brain surgery focused character. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. I obviously this this really seems kind of crazy and hackneyed. I'm not quite sure if it's as bad as Nick portrayed it because I think the person's just insane. I think they're they're like a brain surgeon, a mad scientist brain surgeon first, and maybe a monster rights activist second, but. Uh, it, I agree. It's not a good look. And I do have concerns about where the story is going forward. And, and so far that girl has been a pretty prominent character in the story. Like basically saying like, if you like, we should treat monsters better. Monsters are just animals like us. They have feelings. Uh, and there was an earlier event where students were in like a underground coliseum killing monsters. Then one of the monsters, uh, like led a mini revolution to try to kill their oppressors and, couldn't talk, but it was like writing words in the sky saying like, who's getting hunted now, which was pretty lit. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I do think okay. a lot rides on the conclusion to this story arc, uh, but definitely the villain is pretty, pretty out there and probably not good. So, I mean, we don't have to have a concrete answer to this at this stage, but is this trying to do like a fantasy racism, classism kind of allegory, do you think? Or is it just kind of messing around with like what if monster i think the the racism angle is inescapable uh and a lot of these monsters are effectively i guess either like slave labor or just being used as like victims to gladiatorial combat type student events so Mm -hmm. i don't think you can really separate the plot uh, like that that theme from the goings-on in the plot whether it's intentional or not uh I'm really tired of seeing this type of stuff in my anime fantasy series, regardless. Um, so, yeah. Uh, okay. Either way, yeah, it's not a good look, regardless. Yeah. Uh, and, and very discouraging. Uh, it, it's it, My hopes are not high <laughs> that okay. it will finish in a way that is satisfying and, or maybe good. Well, let's uh, let's also come back to that one. We have a lot. I mean, this is what we get from being in the middle of the season, I guess. There's a lot that we're going, ooh, ooh, ooh okay. You know, making a lot of question mark noises that will hopefully come to <laughs> conclusions at the end. But then again, who knows? Maybe this one will also end on an absolute bastard of a cliffhanger like the other series that you mentioned. And we'll never be free. Who knows? Love to find out. Um, We're never afraid. To a different kind of fantasy now. We've got uh, Reborn as a Vending Machine. I now wander the dungeon. Um, I think that it is healthy for a person upon occasion to have a relationship to a piece of media that is, this is really stupid and I'm in love with it. And that's <laughs> that's kind of where I am with Vending Machine right now. How about you guys? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, it's gotten a little cheeky in the last couple episodes, like where he distracts those. Uh, I guess they were going to murder that woman with pornography <laughs> by turning into a magazine vending machine. Uh, oh, yes. Yes, he turns yeah. into a porn magazine vending machine. And they're all yeah. like, oh, I'm horny now. Yeah. I'm going to leave. And he's like, oh, ha All those start making excuses about needing to go to the, like, they have a stomachache. I need to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm wondering if... I'm wondering how horny the vending machine anime might get, but uh, it's to that point, right? yeah, uh, to that point, it's been very just chaste and kind of goofy and fun, and it seems like all the characters uh, are kind of just quirky and get to do fun stuff, uh, and the main character just kind of really maybe always wanted to be exactly what a vending machine is. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's um yeah, it's interesting because it doesn't it doesn't have like fan service or sexual jokes per se, but it has had like multiple gags where either the vending machine himself or one of the other characters, like something will happen and they'll remark, Golly gee, it's a good thing you're a, a box and not a flesh and blood man. Otherwise this would be really awkward and kind of sexual. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And then they yeah. move on. Yeah, but, but that is not the case. <laughs> 
Yeah. Which is like, uh, you could do far worse, of course, yeah. especially because, you know, it's an isekai. We have, have to put it in conversation with that. But it's like, yeah, it, it's certainly not, I don't know, like there have been scenes where, for example, yeah, the main girl has like reached inside the vending machine to get a can out. Or um, I think it's episode four, like he's rescuing a woman. It turns into an oxygen vending machine, which is a thing that exists. Now I know, I have learned. Um, and so, yeah, she's like huffing oxygen from him. And it's kind of like... She she makes some comment where she's like, you know, obviously sucking air out of him. And then she's like, wow, you rescued me. If you were a man, you'd be irresistible right now. And he's like, ha, ha, ha. And it, it just yeah. kind of leaves it there. It's like a weird kind of sexually charged moment, but it's mostly just a silly joke. And it doesn't like frame the storyboard around her in a gross way or anything. It's interesting. They <laughs> just all like, just assume he's a guy. Yeah. Like if you were a, if you were a person, you would definitely be a man. I, that's I yeah that's true i hadn't thought of that but they that is the joke it keeps coming back to right just oh if you were like if it, oh if you were a woman this would be fine yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know also that that uh, it's kind of just like a little five minute discussion but where they bring him in that vending machine in for advice i guess and they just talk about i guess they, they keep saying hygiene but i guess they have a problem with like stds and yeah. he just turns into a condom vending machine and they're like oh and they like they're they've literally never seen a condom before but they like figure it out pretty quick and they're like oh this yeah. is really great i guess these stop stds and shit that's great and and it's weird how they just i don't know that the whole thing was just like condoms are good yeah it was like oh because like i mean refreshing in a way because certainly yeah. i know that i've seen like the amount of anime out there that has extreme horny energy but kind of doesn't acknowledge that sex exists yeah um <laughs> for all of those this was like well we we don't have that much horny energy we do we acknowledge that sex exists and like sexual health is an issue and look yeah. here is a condom depicted on stream like i zero horniness in that scene too it's just like oh yeah, yeah it's like like he, he come he kind of the vending machine kind of blushes and is like oh, oh this is case feels kind of weird i'm handing a condom to this pretty girl but yeah, again yeah. it's like mostly just <laughs> I think you just kind of felt awkward. Like there was something, cause there's something like, uh, I don't know, very strange for him, I guess. But the two characters who he's talking to are like village leaders pretty much take it in stride. And mm -hmm. like they buy a bunch of condoms to hand out and that's that. Yeah. And so that's, you know, revolutionized the technology and of, of this world. Like they got, they got Mentos, they got condoms, they got shampoo. Like <laughs> when you think about it too, like a lot of isekai, what are they what do these like Japanese high schoolers always bring into the isekai fantasy people that revolutionizes their countries? It's mayonnaise. They're always freaking making them mayonnaise and shit. Uh, and there's even a joke about that in Executioner and Way of Life. It's like, oh, I can teach you guys how to make mayonnaise. And she's like, yeah, we know. We got it. We got mayonnaise. <laughs> and, but he's like, oh no, condoms. Uh, condoms are actually like one of like uh, probably the most important creations uh, that humanity's ever made for a variety of reasons. It's really like it's kind of crazy that <laughs> I like I, I'm almost surprised that they didn't have maybe a bigger reaction, but maybe just didn't want to dwell on it. But yeah, he kind of he just like revolutionized uh, the world a little bit, but just by making those accessible to their culture mm -hmm. and putting that into, like their that I don't maybe the should I say the zeitgeist of uh, the fantasy world that he now inhabits. Yeah, it's very, I've got no idea where this show is going, and that's kind of fine. It's sort of working in, like, small vignettes of just, like, you know, here's different shenanigans that are going on that Mr. Vending Machine is helping out with. Um, yeah. And it's just, I don't know, it's just, it's rolling along. It's weirdly charming, and as we said, you know, the bar is very low, but the fact that it doesn't really have much overt fan service and only has those occasional cheeky jokes is, is nice. <laughs> mm. Um did you have any thoughts on this one, Tony, since you were also given it a look? <laughs> Do you have any thoughts? Uh, I feel like I like it. Um, I like Lamas. <laughs> I think she's a wonderful female lead. She's delightful. I love that she, like, it almost feels like I'm reading a little bit of an allegory. Okay, this is a wild thing to say, but, like, around accessibility and that she is just so willing to find ways to communicate with him even when he, like, can only communicate in like essentially yes or no or like sentence fragments she's like willing to try to like figure out what he's saying and like never gets frustrated with him for like that being the only way he can communicate 
And I don't know. That's I, true. I, yeah, I know that's that nice. it's a little bit of a stretch to say, but it does feel a little bit like, am I actually going to try to make some sort of disability argument about this vending machine isekai? Yeah. I guess that's what but I'm you doing know, I, right now. I, that does remind me, remember the guys kidnap him and they have that uh, like magic item specialist studying him. And when they bring the vending machine in, they've got that document that the town had made, which was like a flow chart of based on what like vending machine phrases he says, this is what he's trying to say that like everybody used to communicate with him, which I, I don't, uh, what you just said made me think of that. I don't think I really appreciated that in the moment. Yeah, that's true, because, yeah, not, not only is Lammas communicating with him, she's, like, making sure that everyone else can as well. Yeah. That's, yeah, like, even if that's not an intentional allegory, I think that's, I think that's sweet. Like, if that, if that resonates, then hell yeah. It's really just, like, it just makes me like her and makes, like, the story feel very sweet. Like, there, it could have very easily been a much meaner story about, you know, communication, and instead it's a story about people actually trying to communicate with each other effectively. I, I don't know, any show that, like, makes Diet Coke and Mentos the way that you defeat a villain. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I, it gets a thumbs up from me, so I, I, I enjoy it. Uh, <laughs> I can't say that I'm, like, super caught up. I mean, that's all right. Yeah, I, I do appreciate, too, that it has been quite imaginative with, like, you know, all right, here are the limitations. This guy can only communicate in pre-programmed phases that a vending machine would say and can only, you know, use items that you may find in a vending machine. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's using that in a very interesting way. So is this the, okay, I was going to say, is this the exciting, like, fantasy series of the season? But there's other ones to get through as well. So let's not, let's not dive in and make that claim <laughs> just yet. Um, but hey, vending machine's a lot of fun. Um, again, sort of hopping fantasy genres again, I will pop up to Helk which we always kind of sounds like I've got something stuck in my throat. Help. Um, Chiaki is watching this one. It has a couple notes for us. Um, so Helk himself remains a mystery. He's a ridiculous protagonist, but it feels like the supporting cast really fills in for him just being a himbo. Um, uh, Vermilio, the Elite Four General, remains a firecracker, and the show is mostly lighthearted, absurdist comedy. It's a serious story that never gets lost underneath it all, but it remains weird and funny? Question mark. I appreciate that, Chucky. <laughs> uh, when the story turns serious, a limb or two gets chopped off. There is a bit of a tonal dissonance there, but I think the story itself is really starting to pick up around episode four. So that is Chucky's notes on Helk. Again, we'll come back to that one at the end of the series and see kind of how it's how it's progressing forward with that one. So skipping over some other ones in the neutral zone, there's a lot of stuff that's sort of neutral. It's just we're kind of presuming it's just staying the course and flowing along as it has been. Again, if we've missed anything, do let us know. Um, that takes us up to our It's Complicated bucket, which uh, I will start here with the most heretical girl boss queen from Villainess to Saviour, um, which a couple of us are watching, but I'm the only one on the call. So let me take the mic here. Uh this one's, I, okay, so where I'm sitting on this one is that I kind of wish I was more emotionally invested in it to match how conceptually interested I am in it. Um, as Dee said in the three episode check-in, it is pretty intriguing because it's kind of moving the villainess isekai genre into almost a different kind of yeah, genre conversation because its tone and its stakes are so different. Um, like, you know, instead of the villainess character being this sort of haughty, uh, like romantic rival or just sort of school bully antagonist, she, she's a villain. Like she's a tyrant. She is straight up evil. Um, and so our main character has been reincarnated into this, this villain's body. And is like, Oh my God, I'm not just trying to save my life. I'm trying to save the world from me. Um, and, you know, has different uh, different powers and different political stakes sort of attached to that, which, yeah, is pretty cool. I'm still struggling to kind of, like, really latch on to any of the characters, but I appreciate that it's going for that. And, hey, yeah, if you are interested in this idea of the villainous reincarnation story and are not really vibing with uh, others that have mostly kind of been rom-coms um, up to this point, including, you know, things like My Next Life as a Villainess and Endo and Kobayashi Live, which I loved earlier this year, um, then hey, if you want that darker tone, this is perfect for you. Unfortunately, it turns out I do tend to prefer them as rom-coms, but that is entirely just me, and I'm going to stick with this one to see what it does. Um, the real only thing that's kind of made me go ugh about this one 
is I believe in episode five, there is a whole aside where the two main boys um, have an aside and have a whole conversation about how Princess Pride is really just a helpless girl who's clearly deeply afraid of something and it is our duty to protect her, um, which on one hand, I understand where they're coming from because a couple episodes ago she did like run into a battlefield to save somebody's life and put herself in a lot of danger. And I can understand being stressed out about that since you care about her. But, you know, framing it in in that way and phrasing it in that way of like, oh, she's a helpless girl and us as the boys who care for her, we should step up and, you know, protect her. That kind of undermined, you know, her strength and capabilities that we have seen her exhibit um, and yes, she's obviously afraid of something because she has this knowledge of the game world that no one else does and is using that, you know, for good, but they don't know that. So it's, yeah, it, it made sense, but it was just kind of a, you know, ugh, kind of moment, uh, undermining, um, her, her abilities. But on the other hand as well, it was at least nice that the two people who I presume are going to be, you know, her kind of, uh, dual love interests, they were not butting heads over her. They were not getting all shitty and love triangly. They were like, no, no, let's bond over this. Let's bond over our desire to protect this girl, um, which, yeah, was was kind of nice. Um, and I don't have too much else to say about that one thus far. I'm kind of interested to see where it goes and what sort of climax it builds to because it's getting through things sort of slowly, um, you know, watch, watching the characters kind of grow up. Uh, as Princess Pride slowly kind of nullifies various characters' tragic backstories from the games and changes their characterization by making sure that those those tragic backstories don't happen because she's there to stop them uh, and is there to not be needlessly wicked and evil um, as she goes along. So, yeah, definitely interesting potential there with that one, but I'm just waiting for it to really hook me personally, but that's all right. That is a thing that happens sometimes. Uh, the other one in our – well, anyone have any – questions or queries about that one before I scoot along. Mm, sounds like a lot. Might check it out. Sounds like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of what this this <laughs> section is for. Because um, the other one here is the gene of AI, uh, which we also have some notes from Chiaki. It says it's keeping steady and what uh, I reported from the three-episode check-in is still pretty much true. Though episode four delves into some creepy deepfake technology and kind of tut-tuts about how idealized realities can usurp the real world but kind of overlooks the concept of the actual people being deep faked and fails to really express just how creepy that is. Because the focus of the week um, is a high school boy who installs illegal mods in his virtual reality dating game uh, and turns one of his partners into a classmate so he can see her naked. Uh, the show punishes him for losing touch with reality, but really doesn't drill down into how unnerving or gross this is for the, you know, for the, the girl who had her, who was, who was being, AI into being nude and how kind of ick it is for people to incorporate real people into their fantasies in this kind of exploitative way. So yeah, interesting tech stuff going on with that one still that again, we will return to in due course to see how that one's going. And if it is, um, yeah, if it's still playing with sort of progressive ideas or if it just ends up being more of a mixed bag, we will see. I do want to say it's kind of a frustrating series because it looks, it's got a very interesting style and is obviously influenced by, if not Astro Boy, then specifically Pluto, uh, like its art style and kind of themes. Um, but it does generally seem to like want to explore a lot of concepts around artificial intelligence and all of these subplots kind of feel like they're in different worlds because many of them don't seem to like cohere into like a single like consistent reality they're all living in with a lot of the different ways it's presenting AI that they don't seem like they could exist at the same time, um, even though they're supposed to. Um, and it does generally feel like it's kind of always kind of exploring one aspect while missing maybe kind of the greater uh, sort of uh, existential issue that the scenario it's created presents as with the, the AI deep faking thing, it's just mm -hmm. kind of like, oh, isn't this weird for this reason? And I always find myself going like, well, yeah, I guess, but I feel like that's like my third greatest concern <laughs> around that idea. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I don't know if it's, there, there's their central plot around the main character. Uh, and I think like the death of his mother 
that has to do with this weird, like illegal brain copying technology. Not quite sure how she's involved yet. I, I don't know if once it gets more into the plot, it's going to, since obviously that's like the central premise it wants to explore, it might have a better idea around what it's doing while it's kind of doing this um, environmental world building mini scenario type situation. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that turns into something a bit stronger, but for the meantime, yeah, it's just like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Thank you for that input. So yeah, Gene of AI, I'll come back to that one. Uh, very prescient, obviously <laughs> at the moment with a lot of conversations about AI that are happening. Though again, if it's touching on them in relevant ways or not, it remains to be seen. Up into our final category. Um, we have our second to last entry for our purposes today. Uh, that is Undead Murder Farce. Best title of the series, for sure, uh, by name alone. Um, I'm not caught up on this one, so I would love to pass the mic to you guys to see what the heck's going on with this one. I like it. I could spend the entire time that we're talking right now talking about how much I love the dynamic between the two protagonists. I could spend just as much time talking about how happy I am that the male lead has nipples and that he is hot. Representation, yes. (laughs) Hot, hot boy representation, male nipple representations, hashtag free the nipple. I mean, that's a valid point. You see that super often. You really don't. It's really shocking. Um, it's like I was even watching Superman, the new Superman show the other today, and there was he, he took his shirt off and there was no nipples. And I'm like, they stole opportunity nipples. wasted. They, they stole Clark's <laughs> nipples. Apparently, apparently um, on Krypton, they don't have nipples, I guess. Um, anyways... I do definitely appreciate all of the, like, hot men in the show. That makes me very happy. I know that it's basically League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the show, and I don't mind that. I think some the pacing concerns me slightly because, as I, as Vry pointed out in their three-episode review, the, they really jiggled around the different um, plot elements. So originally the... Murder mystery is the first thing, and then the and then there's kind of a flashback to the uh, to Aya and um, Shinichi, or is it Shinichi or Shinichi? Uh, gosh, hold on. Suguru, Shinichi. Shinichi, yes, 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 yes. Shinichi. Yeah. So, Suguru. but what? I, yeah, Suguru. He called him Suguru, Shin, Shinichi, or Shin, Shinichi. So. The, originally, them meeting is a flashback that happens after the murder arc, and I think uh-huh. one of the concerns that that Vry pointed out that I think is accurate is like, okay, so how are they going to make this all cohere? How are they going to make it feel like the whatever loose ends they started with are wrapped up, right? Like, you know, when it comes to, for example, all this heavily leading into how both these characters are united by having been denied bodily autonomy, like, with Shinuchi having, them both having had their humanity and body parts stolen by these, by this imperialist um, character, um, this, like, I believe British aristocrat, and the chances are that the show's not, it doesn't seem like the show's gonna get there by the end of the season, and I really hope that they do, because that's really interesting, and I would also like for them to return to Japan and explore a little bit more of what's going on with this whole like de-okaification um, because that was, was just kind of really yeah, was thrown in yeah. there yeah, yeah. and then never explored. Yeah, I was gonna, sorry, I was going to say that was um, I was almost a bit disappointed to hear that they spend most of the show in Europe kind of stacking up their roster of, you know, Phantom of the Opera, Sherlock Holmes and John Watson and, you know, all that kind of folks because I was like, oh, the, um, the setting of the first episode in that sort of alternate Meiji era and with the sort of supernatural allegory for, you know, civilization and westernization ripping the spirit out of a country. That was fascinating to me. And yeah, I agree with you guys. I hope it comes back to that because that was kind of the juice for me. And I'm sort of less interested in seeing them run around with um all the the <laughs> the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, as it were. Yeah, it would be very frustrating and honestly feel like it would undermine largely that point, right? You know? Because it's like, well, if this is supposed to be an anime that has anti-imperialist themes, then why are we, like, you know, spending so much time hyperfixating on these Western cultural, like, icons? Uncr- pretty much uncritically. I don't know, it just, it, it, it's kind of baffling. 
but I also think like maybe I'm maybe I was mistaken. You know, I think part of the problem is that because that came first, right? That set me up with this idea of what the themes of the show were going to be, and then it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then it didn't follow them, and I was like, oh, I guess, oh wow. Oh, so this is coming back to the why maybe they should have done the murder mystery first. Yeah, because then then I wouldn't have gotten my hopes up so much, you know, about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I can. That that's that's really true. I can definitely see how, from a, like a, a Japanese director's perspective, he might have <laughs> that might not have occurred to them at all. <laughs> Maybe they were like, "We have to front load the episode where you see him shirtless a bunch." Oh, Maybe true. that was the thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get that. Well, I, we know why people want to watch this. Yeah. Got to show that the, we we have nipples. <laughs> I do want to say I love the interactions between. Uh, it's Aya right and Suguru. Yeah, and yeah, they're great. They're fantastic. Yeah, the the back and forth, uh, the fact that they're they're I don't know they both kind of uh, as you said they've got these uh, um they're both like victims of this guy right but I don't I don't it's not making light of what's happened to them but they're able to find humor in their shared problems and even the, like it's pretty much the subject of their constant they've like turned it into an in joke between them. Uh, that I can only imagine is extremely annoying to everybody around them. Uh, but I love the fact that they're always making jokes back and forth while everybody else is just forced to sit through them. It's great. They're so, both so funny. The number of jokes that this show makes about Aya not having a head and not having a body, just being, I was about to say a headless torso, but I'm like, wait, that, that's a grinder profile. Um, she's the opposite yeah. of a grinder profile. <laughs> she's a torso oh head. Yeah, she um, But... No, she can't. Um, but you know, Suguru can. Oh, um, yeah. but anyways, I, I I still think this is a very satisfying series in some ways. I I think that the mm-hmm. the stylish writing, the incredible animation, the um just general atmosphere, it's very fun to watch. I just I'm not entirely sure it's going to end up like um being as substantial as I wish it was could be. Um, yeah. And as Riot's pointed out, right, like the the kind of discussions of bodily autonomy are very reminiscent of something like case study of Vanitas, um, with you know what happened, well, the backstories of certain characters and that. But anyways, I'm gonna go ahead yeah. and I think that's all my thoughts on it. it. It's also worth mentioning. Uh, I know we've probably mentioned this in the the various write ups, but uh, Mamoru Hatakeyama is directing it, so it's not just the animation that's great. The direction is amazing. Takiyama also directed Kaguya-sama and Shogun Roku Rakugo Shinju. So it's, I don't know, it's an experience watching this stuff this dude makes. Cool. Uh, yeah, just <laughs> like the, the, the shots, the composition, uh, the pacing. It's uh, kind of just like once you've seen something he makes, it, you can spot him very quickly again in a very unique style. So that's that's another reason to check out the series, even if nothing else for some reason has piqued your interest. Mm-hmm. Interesting. We'll come back to that as well, of course, and see, yeah, if it can bring all those themes back together and tie up in a nice bow. Maybe it won't. Um, but hey, nothing worse, nothing worth losing your head over. Um, mm-hmm. oh, <laughs> to bring us nice. to the, I'm sorry, I'm on. I'm what's the opposite of being on fire? Because I am that today. To wrap us commit, up, though, commit, obviously. commit. Yeah. <laughs> Commit to the bit. Take a yeah. cue from Aya. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm just so tired, Tony. To wrap this up today, though, um, we're going to talk about my happy marriage, which is at the top of our uh, potential list. Uh, I'm a bunch of us are watching this on staff. I'm the only one on the call, so I'm going to do my level best to give you know a nuanced read on this one because this one's is a little bit tricky. I'm watching it. A, I'm watching it too. So. Oh, yes, you, you had listed just if I get Netflix, lol, is what you had written yesterday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, fair and enough, now I have... cer- certain password sharing shenanigans. Oh, my gosh. Well, okay, so I, I, will, I will say my piece and then see what, see what you think. See if you agree with what I'm, what I'm putting down. Because I'm enjoying this show. Um, it took me kind of an episode or so to warm up to it, but I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm, I like looking at it. It's very pretty. I think the pacing is interesting. I kind of wish it had introduced the supernatural element a bit earlier and folded in more naturalistically. But the the main thing I think we need to talk about for our purposes here is the way this show is constructing the protagonist's autonomy 
or the way that it's not doing that. Because um, this is in a tricky spot where, as people, many people have pointed out, it's kind of following what we now consider the sort of Cinderella story formula. Certain issues come with that, but there is also a very sincere power fantasy in that that I really don't want to dismiss. Like, this is a character who has had a terrible time in a power structure that she couldn't escape from. You know, in this case, she was a child in an abusive family. Um, but then she persevered and sort of as a cosmic reward for that, I suppose, you could read it that way. She's been now taken out of that situation and is now, you know, on the way to better and brighter things and is in the hands of someone who is powerful and who will protect her from that structure. And if you are someone who resonates with that experience, I imagine that is very powerful and very moving. Not to say that it will, you know, there is a one-size-fits-all power fantasy for people who have been in abusive situations, of course, but I certainly I remember... Um, following from discussion around the that that spate of obnoxious Cinderella retellings that we have been having, like Angela Webber's Bad Cinderella and like that god awful Amazon jukebox musical that they made, um, where the kind of the very shallow read of, of that archetype was, oh, we have to make the Cinderella character a go get a girl boss who don't need no man, and that's how we make the story feminist. Um, Certainly I saw a lot of response to that that was like, well, that's not really the point of the story and a lot of the catharsis of the story for people who do resonate with it, that, you know, coming at it and thinking you can quote-unquote fix it by adding agency in that way kind of undermines what's going on there. So it is definitely a nuanced and complicated discussion around that and I certainly don't want to write this show off as like, oh, well, she's not doing much, so, you know, it doesn't have any literary value. However, it is also really worth interrogating how how Mio is acting or not acting in the story because she is the heart of the story. A lot of the stuff is happening to her and a lot of the conflict surrounds her, but she doesn't really have much input in it. Um, I believe Dee said in the Slack, it's getting a bit to a point where we are hitting the halfway point in the story and she's still in a place where she is mostly a reactive protagonist. And that's an issue. Obviously, we're coming at this from a you know feminist analysis point of view. Like, that's what we do here. We don't have feminists in our website title just for fun. Um, so obviously, that's an issue there. But even just from a more basic storytelling point of view, it is kind of an issue because you have a main character who is not impacting the story, who is not like moving the narrative forward through their personal motivations or their choices, that can get frustrating and can lead to the question of, well, why are you the protagonist of this story if it's kind of all just sort of happening to you? So let me know what you think of this, Tony, but what I'm really hoping for with this show, I want to be optimistic. I have my fingers crossed. I really hope that it reaches a point where it's sort of, hits a nice middle ground where it does appeal to that romantic fant- and then personal fulfillment fantasy of, you know, being rescued from a situation. But also we let Mio do some more stuff and kind of come into her own. And even if she's not, you know, a real go-getter and a badass, we are seeing more, you know, more and more scenes and more and more plot lines where her decisions and her thought processes and who she is as a person actually move the story forward that's what i'm really hungry for and i have my fingers crossed that we get to that point but i'm kind of eh, wary about it at this stage i don't know what do you think yeah i mean i think that one thing that i often think about when it comes to stories about women and like women who are survivors especially is like how do we make it so that the story is not just depicting them as objects to be moved around as, you know, glorified MacGuffins, you know? And Mm -hmm. often the thing that I look for and I'm always curious about is, does she have choices that she makes, active choices that she's making, right? (laughs) You know, that she is deciding which route is she going to go on and in, is that going to significantly affect the story outcome, right? whether she chooses to do this or chooses to do that. And uh, as of now, I haven't really seen a, it seems almost like a foregone conclusion in most scenes, how she's going to respond. And the foregone conclusion is always going to be, you know, I keep in mind, I'm only about uh, 
three and a half episodes in, I've watched halfway through episode four, and in almost any scene, it's going to be that she is beating herself up, um, saying something horrible about herself. Somebody else has to remind her, actually, no, you are worth you are worth valuing, you know, worth treasuring. And then she, you know, either internalizes that or she does not, you know. And usually she, it just kind of goes in one ear, not the other. Um, or she, you know, feels it a little bit, but then it doesn't really make a huge impact on, like, her sense of self. Which, I mean, of course, it's a very long arc of her healing. Um, but I, I really am curious to see, like, is it going to be that, she eventually is going to be able to, for example, in the situation where Kaya, like Kaya is her sister and is just a total bully. And the level of cruelty that this family shows to her is just incredibly painful to watch, to be honest. Like, especially the scene where Kaya essentially assumes that she had been thrown out. Um, Yeah, when she meets her on the street and just, yeah... Weirdly, that scene was actually the most painful scene that I've seen so far. Um, I, I'm and not I, sure. I thought that why. was interesting too. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I no, yeah. it is painful because, especially because it shows that, like, that's after Mio has spent some time away from the family, kind of like starting to get a little bit more confident. She spent some time with someone who actually likes her and wants to take care of her, you know, in form of both her fiance and the housekeeper who's been really nice to her and she's befriending. And then, yeah, and then the sister turns up and does her, you know, normal power trip thing and you can see, like, the trigger occurring and you can see Mio, like, not to say all that good work has been undone, but I, it felt it felt very emotionally honest in how it's just like, oh, hey, spending some time away from this horrible situation wasn't a magic fix. You can see her reverting and you can see her sinking back into her shell Um and not just in the street, you know, that emotional feeling follows her home and she has to sort of build herself back out of it, which, yeah, you know, that's, that's how emotional triggers work. It felt very real, even if, as I kind of mentioned in my three-episode check-in, some of the abuse does feel a little bit, like, over-the-top for melodrama. Um, so, yeah, that that's, yeah, I think it's in episode four. It's particularly brutal, yeah. And I think what I really appreciate about it is, as you just said, you know, it really... She had been, it is a show that is playing with this kind of gradations, right? Gradations of her beating herself up, right? (laughs) You know, and Mm -hmm. she had started to beat herself up a little less by that point. And then after that happens, she's just, her behavior just goes right back to where it was when she first met the um, the male lead. And it's Mm -hmm. emotionally devastating to watch. And I think also is somewhat realistic to the actual backsliding that happens as an abuse survivor when you re-encounter your abuser, right? You know, you're re-encountering, like, and that person will try to find ways to worm their way back into your life to regain the power that they had over you. That's that's just accurate. And when it happens, it is devastating. But yeah, I think that, like, for me, I, I it, it is still very difficult for me to kind of know what direction the show is going to go in terms of is it is she is she going to develop community beyond just her 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 now fiance because god i would as d said in the slack i would really love to see her make some female friends who you know so it's not just yeah, you like, know kind of yeah <laughs> you were saying <laughs> i mean i do i do like that it has established like she had she, she's becoming friends with the housekeeper and she also like had another like a fellow maid that she was friends with that she met back up with in I think episode yeah. four or five um which was yeah sweet because it's like oh yeah because then yeah you don't have the, the dichotomy of like all oh, the women are the wicked stepmother and the evil half-sister characters um you have others that are also you know all right human beings um but yeah like it would be good to see that be yeah, building that community and to see that again it Emotionally, it makes sense that this character arc to her being more confident is a very slow burn one because that's often how this works in real life. But again, this isn't this is a story, this is fiction. And so there are certain, you know, needs or wants that the audience has, and one of them is seeing a more proactive protagonist and is seeing her develop at a pace that is 
rewarding um, in terms of, you know, we, yeah, we want to see a main character who has autonomy, who is the main character for very tangible reasons. And so, yeah, that's going to be the main sticking point, I think, with this one. Because I think it does have a lot of potential. I don't, certainly don't want to write it off. I certainly am enjoying it and want to keep enjoying it. But it's just going to be, that's going to be the main question for our purposes here. But that is about all we have time for today. We have taken a journey from uh, through a bunch of different, a lot, of, a lot of fantasy sort of happening this series and a lot of different sort of interesting ideas being played around. Maybe not so many progressive themes to chew on this season, but hey, we got hot man nipples so (laughs) it's not nothing um thank you so much for listening if you liked what you heard you can find the rest of our uh reviews and essays on our website uh animefeminist.com we are also on the social medias uh anime feminist on twitter on mastodon on cohorst 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 on blue and on blue sky as well uh we're on tumblr animefeminist.com Uh, If you really liked what you heard, of course, you can come along and help us keep the lights on. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash animefeminist. That could help you get access to a lot of fun things like the Discord, like bonus podcasts and bonus mini reviews. You can also buy our merch at shopanifem.myshopify.com. And I'm doing it again. I'm looking for a fun pun to carry us out. And I already used up my don't lose your head one. Tony, Peter help me out or just grab a crook a hook and pull me off the stage you've been in the theater tony you know how to do that 